Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Athletic. That's how it plays out. How perfect is that? Goal number 30 in all competitions this season for the imperious Harry Kane. Hello everybody and welcome once again to The View from the Lane. As you know, the award-winning twice-weekly Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. Uh, I'm your host, Danny Kelly, and alongside me today are The Athletic's Jack Pitbrook and James Moore. Uh, hello, Jack. Hello. And hello, James. Hello, Danny. Good, that established there then. Of course, we have discussed the possibilities that I'm impersonating both of them. And we haven't yet heard Charlie Eccleshare's award-winning and once again um, impressions of people. I'm going to have an impression off with him a bit later on. Got any impressions, James? Uh, no, not really. Okay. I, I did uh, try and do Tom from Succession, but it, it wasn't. I'm not going to do it now. It's bad. Okay. No, no. Practice. Practice. Uh, as people, yeah, regular listeners of the podcast will know, Charlie's going to do all kinds of famous people. I'm going to do. Donovan, the 60s folk singer, my dad, and John Azelwood, the former reviews editor of Q magazine. How good is your Tom Wamsgams, James? I need to know what I'm not, not going to do it now. I just tried to do it the other day and it, it was quite funny, but I'm not, I'm not going to do it on a podcast. But it's sort of, oh, hey guys. It's that kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. I can't do an impression of Tom Wamsgams, but funny story. When I got married two years ago, I finished my speech with the closing lines of Tom's speech when he marries Shiv. Um, you know, the kind of wife, 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 wife bit. Okay, thank you very much, Need for that. Listen, on this episode, we will look back on a dreary last home game of the season. Well, a dreary second half of the last home game of the season as Spurs were whacked 3-1 by Brentford. And don't worry, we can use the music to drown out the noise just like the club did. Um, and there are developments in the search for a new manager literally breaking as we speak. It's Monday morning, no point in pretending that we're time travellers. Um, and it seems... Um, but uh, I suppose I'm preparing what's described as a formal approach for Arna's slot. All of this to come on The View from the Lane. OK, um, Spurs are apparently um, preparing a formal approach to final for Arna's slot to be their new manager and head coach. The Dutch manager has moved into pole position for the job ahead of other candidates. And there's a list here in front of me longer than the uh, telephone book for Manchester no formal approach yet, Jack, but um, something is shaking because uh, you um, are looking at your phone a lot before we started the podcast. So I think it's it's been increasingly apparent to me and to others, and th- th- this has been reported by other journalists, since the sort of second half of last week that he was in, in pole position, that he was the likeliest manager he was the like he was kind of he was the favorite basically to become the next Tottenham manager as it stands on Monday morning our information is that Tottenham have not yet made an official an official request to Feyenoord um to approach him so it's you know we're not in the don't think we're quite in the final stages of this yet that said you know the official the official approach is usually the last thing to happen 
in these processes and um clubs you know ideally clubs know who they want first and they get all their ducks in order and then they make the official approach so yes you know still a long way to go you know anyone who lived through 2021 knows that um it's not over until you see him paraded on the club website holding up a scarf and, and all that but it certainly feels this morning that things have moved on in the you know in slot's favor over the sort of second half of last week like i said and it's now he's now looking like the clear favourite to be the next Tottenham manager. How does that make you feel, James? I mean, if it, if it really is the end of this saga, then I guess kind of quite relieved. I know we're not quite at 72 days yet, but obviously it has dragged on quite a long time. And getting someone in as close to the end of the season as possible, so you know he's in situ to make the decisions that need to be made at the end of the season and through the summer... Uh, you know, with regards to reshaping the squad and whatever else, rather than kind of being parachuted in at the start of July, that that, that definitely makes sense. You know, clearly he's a guy who can get the most out of a group of players. That seems to be what he's done at final this season. So again, that that is a positive. And as we were saying last week, he seems like a kind of quite amiable bloke, like a good personality. Until somebody's actually got the scarf above their head, um, uh, there's no point in finding out too much about them. Otherwise, I'll know all about people I've never heard of before, and I don't need that. Um, it, can, it should be said, though, of course, that, and you know, you need a bit of luck. Uh, uh, Ajax unraveled because they let Ten Hag go, um, and PSV no longer have the the, the the advantage they used to have when Philips was a huge brand in the electronics market. And finance them means that they're not, their name is rather stronger than their reality these days. But still, for final to come and win the title in Holland is pretty pretty good going. Yeah, it's worth it's worth bearing in mind what a big disadvantage final start every season with. You know, I Ajax. I know from the Europe, you know, from an English perspective, you look at Ajax having to sell all their players all the time, losing Ten Hag. It's easy to think of them as the you know sort of financial minnows. And they kind of are, really, compared to the Premier League. But in the context of the Eredivisie, you know, they're the ones who can, you know, go and buy Steven Bergwijn from Tottenham, for example, which is certainly not something that Feyenoord could do. You know, Feyenoord have only won the title once this century, which is in 2016-17. And this is it's a huge club, you know, former, former As European As they will champions. point out, they were European champions before Ajax were, and they were the yeah. first team to be seen in European football playing total football. Um, all that glory has gone to that Ajax team that won the three titles in, I want to say, 71, 72, 73. But Feyenoord were the ones who introduced that to the world. So I don't think... I think what 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 Slot has done at Feyenoord, remember he took them to the Europa Conference League final last year, it's, it's not quite as glamorous, but it's not that different from what Spalletti has done at Napoli. You know, he's he's ended a lot a drought, obviously not quite as long in this case, but he's got a very big club who has really, really struggled in the league to finally overperform and, and go back and... And get the top slot, you know, if no no pun intended, if uh, that was genuinely no pun intended, if uh, and you know, if, if Borussia Dortmund go on to win with Aiden Terzic, which they, they just need to beat, was it uh, Mainz in the last day of the season, then again, that will be an equivalent level achievement too, having not won the league for 10 years. But you know, I think I wrote a column a few weeks ago saying that if you look at the success of these guys, they're not, you know, nobody would call them a proven winner. You know, this is just Slot's second job. He did really, really well at AZ Outmob. How, how's before. it gone with our proven winners in the recent past, Jack? Well, exactly, yeah. And I, I, I gather made himself astonishingly unpopular with AZ Outmar when he left them for Feyenoord because, you know, they're obviously kind of vying just below the big guys in in the Dutch table. Um, but he, it's only his second job. He's not that experienced. He does not have the kind of 
CV that has appealed to Daniel Levy in recent years. Now, you know, let let's wait and see if it is indeed him. But if it is him, and it's looking like it is, I think I think this is a a good appointment by Tottenham, a brave appointment, and to be honest, not one that I thought they would make. You know, at the start of this, a few weeks, it was only a month or two ago that I said I thought they'd probably end up going for Luis Enrique or Nagelsmann. So they've gone for Slot, who is much more, uh, he's not such a big name, he plays good football, good character, he can tick all the boxes which they say, Tottenham say they want to be ticked this year, particularly in terms of bringing the club back together and a rebuild and young players and all that stuff. I actually think, you know, we criticise Tottenham a lot on this podcast, and understandably so, because they've got so many decisions wrong in recent years. But I think this this feels like a good move. You should also say he won, I think he won Dutch Coach of the Year last season ahead of Ten Hag. So, what does that tell you? It tells you there's an anti-Ajax bias in the rest of well, the, in the voting, yeah. Um, and of course, he is, uh, for you two in particular... Um, he is a, a dream, isn't he? Because both Arn and um, Slot are just headline writers' dreams. And when the day he's shown the door by Daniel Levy or Daniel Levy's successor, um, it'll be that's your slot, won't it? And and we'll move from there. All of which um, is really just putting off having to discuss the match against Brentford as we go through different stages of the day. What we thought we'd do was review it because Charlie, Jack, James were all there. I was watching on TV. And our collective Twitter output actually forms a, a rather beautiful tableau of the unfolding events. Um, let's start, therefore, and let's see how we're going to do it. I'm going to read out some of what the lads said in the course of the two hours that encompass the, the build-up to the match, the match, and the lap of appreciation, as I think these things are called these days, when word salad is all. Um, this was James. Uh, in our WhatsApp group, 30 minutes before the kickoff, and I remember James has not been going um, to, to Spurs for a while, despite having a season ticket. He said, not been here for two months, and there are genuinely cobwebs on my seat. Actual cobwebs, yes? Yeah, that, that, that is genuinely true, yeah. On the side of the seat, there were a load of cobwebs. And, and people have supposedly been sat there. The ticket has been passed on. Uh, but yes, there were cobwebs on the seat. Unfortunately, I couldn't get a good photo. What was it like going back to the, to the stadium? Uh, I had an incredibly smooth journey up, which I really didn't expect for a half twelve kickoff. And yeah, it felt it felt quite good. I was pretty optimistic. I think Jack would tell you I was I was messaging him and Charlie quite a lot, like excited ideas for you know this game in the summer and things we were going to write, like kind of bubbling up in my mind. And I was quite enthusiastic about it. And, uh, and to be fair, in the first half, I was I was rewarded for my return. Absolutely, your felt. optimism on yeah. for once, uh, James was totally rewarded. Really paid off. The, as well as uh, the crowd cheering as James made his way to his uh, to his seat, um, I think the next exciting thing was the look of the lineup. Uh, our own Charlie Eccleshare uh, tweeted this: "Teams coming out, exciting lineup, lovely day. Brighton defeat opens the door a little. What could possibly go wrong?" Yeah, Charlie and Jack. The lineup um, with Basuma in it um, and a back four, um, despite the BBC announcing it as a back five uh, a little earlier. And four out-and-out attacking players, very exciting. But also, there's a sort of footnote to that, isn't there? Richarlison can't get into a team with four out-and-out forwards in it. Yeah, it was interesting, wasn't it, that he went for Dan Juma over Richarlison wide on the right. You know, I I think it's a fair enough, really. We've all wanted to see Dan Juma start a game. This was his first start. He's been here since January. 
I and I can kind of understand why he would do it. You know, Danjuma Danjuma's ability to beat people one v one is something that hardly anyone else at not really anyone else at Tottenham has what Danjuma has. Um, and it was just it it was different seeing Tottenham playing that way. You know, an attacking four two three one. Kulisewski is a ten again. Don't think he's played. He hasn't played at all as a ten for Tottenham. He always plays on the right of that front three. Um, and given that this was the, you know, this is only the second time this season Tottenham played a back four, the first being obviously Newcastle away. We all know what happened there. I enjoyed watching. Um, I thought, you know, it was good to see them play with a bit of ambition and positivity and trying to take the game to the opposition that first half. They made a lot of chances too, it's, it's fair to say. Were you as, were you suitably warmed by by what you were seeing, James? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was pretty enthusiastic about that. I mean, there were, it, it felt like one of those halves where they were trying a lot and not all of it was coming off. They kind of created quite a few good opportunities. There quite a few times that Jan June, like the movement between the four attacking players was good, or it existed, which maybe hadn't previously been the case. Uh, and, you know, Dan Juma got in a few good positions and couldn't quite take the chance. But it felt like chances were coming. They were relatively comfortable on the ball. Brentford didn't really look especially bothered, which I suppose is probably a factor in the way that first half went. I, I, I mean, I would say on Dan Juma, that was actually the first time I saw him play live. And if that was his audition, uh, to sign permanently, I'm not convinced that is going to happen. I mean, I know we're kind of a, we're, we're not really minded that that was going to be the case anyway. But you know, he was fine. But I wasn't, I wasn't wowed. It kind of felt like he really needed to have a big game to uh, to make that happen. That definitely didn't happen. Sure. Um, uh, as I say, they created quite a few chances. There's certainly a lot of uh, rummaging around it in the opposition penalty box. The goal when it came was an absolute thing of beauty. Um, I don't know whether it counts as Kane breaking uh, his drought from free kicks. It goes back, Jack always has the figures here. It's about 10 years since he scored direct from a free kick, and despite taking 1.2 million of them um, in the meanwhile. But whatever, however it got to his feet, uh, with that little flick to one side, Jack responded by Harry Kane, free kick, 1-0. I mean, uh, the, the barely describes the, the beauty of it. And then you went on to say, Jack, I never thought I'd see... The day, etc., curls it into the top corner from thirty yards out. But is it? It's from Kulusevski's little back heel. Still, does it still count as a direct free kick goal? Um, I have to say, I quite like Harry's ongoing actual free kick drought because it's it's comical now. But what a finish! What an absolute perler! And again, and I say this through gritted teeth, how very lucky we are to be to have him at the club and to be watching him. What a goal! I think we decided that it could be it would have to be described as a free kick routine and I'm sure it's not getting counted as a direct free kick goal even though in effect that's what it is. I, I think I'm right in saying it's a it's a counter goal that Spurs have scored from a set piece but not a free kick scored by Harry Kane. Oh, interesting. So the drought goes on. That feels so that feels kind of harsh to say that he's still in this free kick drought but I mean, if he if he had done that half a dozen times over the last nine years, no one would be really complaining about how bad his free kicks were. No, and, it, and what if it turns out that the real trick is that Kulusevski is brilliant at that two-yard back heel, and that that is the missing ingredient. And in fact, he has to play when he's injured just so he can do it to set Kane up. Um, it meant that Harry had scored 42% of uh, Spurs' 66 Premier League goals this season so far. That sounds a lot, but it doesn't match Kevin Phillips, who in Sunderland's season 1999-2000 scored 52% of their goals, I think in league with Niall Quinn flicking the ball on for him again and again and again. My 
my contribution to the, the Twitter feed at this stage was to make the point, and remember, I know Darren Fletcher, and I have worked with Darren Fletcher, and he's a good guy, and he's a decent commentator. Um, he's been at it a long time as well. But when Darren mentioned the possibility of Harry Kane's transfer before the kickoff, I thought I was going to eat my own arm off. Give it a flipping rest, people. We know he's coming to the end of his contract. We know that particularly younger football fans are obsessed with transfers because it gives them a feeling that they're involved with drama and money. But this was made worse for me. And again, I tweeted this out as well. When the goal went in, Darren said, and if this is to be Harry Kane's last appearance at this stadium, enjoy the football, man. Enjoy a brilliant moment in the game. You don't have to be banging on about this over and over. It's like we, it's like we don't know there's a possibility that he might be on his way. And, and, just, and just to make it clear that we're not entirely one-eyed about this, uh, watching West Ham versus Leeds yesterday, and on Sky they were doing a very similar thing with Declan Rice. Like, who I think is way more likely to leave West Ham this summer than Kane is to leave Spurs. Miles, miles more likely. Um, and, you know, they just kept really labouring that point. And yeah, and, you know, the same thing. If you're a West Ham fan watching that game, watch your team come from behind to win, score a couple of good goals. You know, they're in a European final. Things are, things are looking all right after a tough season. You don't want to hear that. That's the last thing you Absolutely. want. Absolutely. No, no. And sympathy to them as well. And I mean, the end game, the football, the, the TV company's got to be careful here because in the end, if no player is ever allowed to stay at a club that they haven't designated big enough for their requirements, um, every single good player in the Premier League will be playing for Manchester City. It's already nearly a fait accompli. Um, you don't need to be adding to it with constant har- harassing of players to move club. Can I just say on the topic of Kane that the, the mural that, that is actually really cool. It's actually really cool. It's not tacky. It's actually really good. So it's on, if you walk from, uh, you can't miss it. If you're walking from White, if you come out of White Hart Lane train station and then walk towards the ground, and obviously everyone's funneled around the corner, so you're, everyone's coming on that narrow res- that narrow street. Uh, it's um, it's just on your right hand side, and so you can cut. It's weird because before you know it, that's where it is. The flow of people stops moving, and so for a second I thought, have they closed the road? What a weird time to close the road. Why is why is why is this big crowd that I'm in suddenly not moving? And then you realise it's because there are uh, probably about two hundred people stood there with their phones doing, you know, doing a selfie from this angle. Oh no, the sun's coming, the sun's pointing at an annoying angle, so I'm going to go move 10 yards over there, do another selfie. Dad, why don't you go and stand in front of it? I'll take a photo of you in front of it. Uh, can you get a photo of us three together? All that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's, I, I think it's actually good. You know, there's not enough public, public art is a good thing. And this is a good trip, a good tribute to Kane. So yeah, I would recommend anyone. In the style of people trying to read his desultory hand claps to the four sides of the ground, as a sign that he's um, saying farewell, I read the mural differently as well. If he'd just been there and been at the opening, you'd have said, well, you know, he's probably uh, obliged so to do. The fact that he brought his whole family and the fact that he put his kids' handprints on the mural, if you look to the right-hand side of the mural, there are splodges of white paint, and those are the handprints of his three children. I'm reading that because I'm entitled to read it as much as anybody else as a sign that he is staying um, and, and and you can argue with me if you want, but that's what I thought. I thought it'd be an odd thing to do to involve your kids if you weren't going to be at the club next season. Now, of course, it might be utter bollocks, but uh, that's what I think. Um, so Charlie Eccleshare at halftime, so much better from Spurs. Lots of energy and attacking ideas, players interchanging, chances being created. Son really bright, Kulusevski as good as he's been in ages. Danjuma getting involved. Kane imperious, 
Very enjoyable game. And then what happened in the second half, Jack? Uh, was it just the, the the substitution that Thomas Frank made that meant that once again Spurs' midfield two were exposed to, to, to being over outnumbered? Yeah, so the change did make a big difference. Uh, Mason's theory in the press conference afterwards was that Spurs just weren't really physically ready. You know, they hadn't played aggressive front foot football with a back four high up the pitch all season, really. And um, he said that you can't really... It's it's very difficult just to... I've forgotten exactly how he put it, but effectively, it's very difficult to flick that switch and start playing like that at the end of a season where you've been playing in a different way. Um, and it, he said the intensity dropped. I certainly think that's true. Like Spurs' intensity collapsed. They were, they just looked incredibly vulnerable. You know, they were, they were so open. There was no, not really any midfield resistance. That's kind of understandable though, because Bissouma hasn't played in months and Skip has played, I think, what, 16 of the last, started 16 of the last 17, having not played for a year. Um, so you can, in both cases, you can see why both those guys would be a bit leggy uh, second half. But yeah, it was just one of those, it was just, re- I have to say, I thought Brentford were so kind of clever and ruthless in the way they, they realised that they had the, they could get the upper hand and then ruthlessly exploited it. Four shots, three goals, which doesn't suggest, you know, that uh, Spurs were under siege or anything, but reflects, I think, that Spurs have just found it impossible to defend their goal, certainly since the World Cup where they've got relegation numbers of goals um, conceded. Uh, whenever the, the chips are down, they just don't have a, a Ledley King or someone putting their foot in at the last second um, to stop the thing going in. What was the atmosphere like as the, as the game changed, James? You really could feel it turn with that first goal. And, I, you know, it's a bit of a ticking on egg situation, but clearly the players lost, like, almost all of their confidence almost immediately after that equaliser went in. And... You know, I I don't really think there was a huge sea change in possession or chances created or whatever. But you know, as you said, Brentford just scored more or less every time they went forward in the second half. And you know, people like you know, Davinson Sanchez is a player who I, I don't think it's unfair to speculate probably suffers from quite brittle confidence. But I, I suppose probably particularly off the back of what happened in that Bournemouth game and the moment that momentum. Turned or the sense that uh, suddenly the game might be getting away from Spurs, like heads seemed to drop, and suddenly there were a few more sloppy passes. You know, players are suddenly second to challenges that they were getting to before. Obviously, this works both ways, and Brentford suddenly looked much more up for it than they had in the first half. Yeah, and then and then what looked like potentially quite a happy, enjoyable end to the season in the sunshine suddenly became. One of one of the most dismal home performances you've seen from Spurs in in absolutely ages, and and now you're looking down the barrel of finishing what eighth or ninth in the league. Another important moment in the in the day was when Lucas Moura uh, came on. He uh, tweeted afterwards, "I can't believe it's time to say goodbye. I don't have the words to explain um, how grateful I am for having had this opportunity uh, to defend this badge." Um, thank you very much, Spurs f- friends, a Spurs family. God bless you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and I suppose it was good that he got on because uh, he's one of those footballers. Well, Jack, you're screwing up your nose, and um, what, what's going on? Yeah, I just disagree. I disagree that I'm sorry if I'm, if I'm cutting you off, but I thought this was a bad decision by Mason. Look, it's all very well wanting to give Lucas, you know, his standing ovation. 
But you can give Lucas a standing ovation by bringing one. I mean, there were like nine added minutes or something at the end. You can bring Lucas Moura on deep into added time. You can bring him on the 89th minute. He'll still get a standing ovation. Bringing him on, I mean, the fact, the sad fact is that Lucas Moura has not really contributed anything to the team at all this season, at all. Well, and not not in a positive sense, anyway. No, 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 no nothing positive. And they had Richarlison on the bench, and I just thought, if you want to make a change and bring off, uh, and get some, you know, get you someone who can actually make a difference in the final third, why not bring on Richarlison by bringing Lucas on as early as you did? He basically, I thought he made it much less likely that Spurs would win the game. Well, I, I was just glad he didn't bring him on it right back, you know, so it was an upgrade on that decision at least. Um, I'm just going to make the point, Lucas has been there, what, five or so years now? Um, more, I think. I can't quite remember when he signed. Um, he, frankly, he's done nothing really except one night in Amsterdam. Um, no, Old Trafford as well. Old right. Trafford. Okay, I'll give you that. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, it's not a great return, but of course, what can you say? The one, uh, sorry, the one and a half days he's turned up were incredibly memorable. Um, and, you know, I wish him all the best. You know, why wouldn't I? Well, he's a moments player, isn't he? He always, has, he always has been. I don't think he was even really brought to the club to be like a sort of regular starter. He was, I guess, like a sort of squad player, an impact player. And, you know, he scored a goal at Man City, I think, in 2019 in a game that Spurs drew when they had no right to draw. I think he scored the first hat-trick at the stadium, I think, against Huddersfield. But yeah, it is, you're right, it is just kind of moments like that rather than, you know, there wasn't there wasn't a, a Lucas Morris season. There wasn't like, a, you know, a run of games where he was one of or the best player in the team. He's just been a guy who's just kind of dipped in and out over the course of five and a half years. Although the weird thing is that even though he's, even though that is absolutely true and that is the kind of player he is, managers do really like him because of the fact that they think he's he works hard they like him as a character he follows he follows the instructions that they give him and so even though we you know fans all think this guy shouldn't be a regular starter at certain points particularly when other players have got injured or whatever lucas has found himself being the guy who's relied upon to to start a long run of games you know there was that you know, just before COVID, when Mourinho put him up front because there was he thought it was kind of the least bad option. There was a time just before Mourinho got sacked where he was basically playing as a ten because Deli Ali wasn't really an option, and so Lucas was moved into the into that role. Even though he played forty five games last season, yeah. Well, when 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 Conte came in, he was the he was the first choice on the right of the front three, um, which everyone thought was a bit odd because everybody was saying, "Oh, he's going to play three five two. Get Andomble in. Get Lacelso in." But Conte, because he saw Lucas as a kind of, you know, one of his warriors who he could count on and would just follow his instructions with no messing about. And I know that that's not what it often looks like on the pitch. Um, managers do really like him. Managers have always liked him. And even even this season, I think, Conte was pissed off the fact he was injured so much because Conte wanted him there as an option. Yeah, and the other thing I remember about him is he's so good in the air. In a team that never crossed the ball, he's really brilliant in the air for a man who's not towering, you know? Um, I suppose you know we have to. We're all human beings. Good luck to him, um, and we will always have Amsterdam. Now, uh, the next moment that I want to refer to. This is um, we all saw it when the crowd were getting um, on their hind legs about Daniel Levy and Enoch, and no one could deny they could hear it this time round. And certainly, some of those black balloons drifted across the pitch in the course of the game. There was that. I don't know whether it was astonishing or just very human moment when Mrs. Daniel Levy reached across to her right and patted her husband on, on his leg 
while he fiddled um, with his glasses. I don't know what to make of that. Would she be better off keep it, keeping away from it, or is that just a human reaction? I mean, I'd say that's probably a fair human reaction to your husband getting absolute powers from about 60,000 people. How bad was it? That, that was definitely the loudest I've ever heard any kind of anti-Levy or board sentiment in the crowd. I mean, it felt like more or less everyone towards the end was singing. It wasn't like, you know, kind of little pockets of people or, or one section of the ground. It did feel like... It, it was more people singing it than not. Yeah, it felt. It sounded from from where I was sat. It sounded really loud. It sounded like, and I, I know it, these things are never quite how they seem, but it sounded like everyone in the south stand. Yeah, I mean, look, that's what it that's what it felt like stood in there, and and you know, I, 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 that that def, there's definitely a different feeling to it now. It's not just kind of spontaneous anger. It's kind of like a resigned, prolonged sense of, you know, this probably isn't going to happen, but. We want to keep reminding people that's what we want to happen. And this is one of my big theories on this season is that I always used to think before this year that kind of Levy out and Enoch out were kind of a it's kind of a fringe view, basically amongst fans, or certainly a minority view. Whereas I get the impression this year that Levy out and Enoch out has actually gone a lot more mainstream. And that there's been lots of people who in the past have been not have who in the past have not been leaving out and who have been you know well we, he's done all this great stuff and uh the financial f- the financial landscape of football etc and all that but I, I feel like a lot of those moderates have moved into the anti-levy camp i mean look the reality is and, and this is probably the reason for that uh you know daniel levy came into tottenham with spurs as a, a kind of you know a club that finished about eighth in out ninth in the premier league with probably the third or fourth most expensive season ticket in the Premier League, uh, you know, 20 years ago. And now Spurs are going to finish eighth or ninth in the Premier League. They have the most expensive season tickets in the Premier League. Uh, <laughs> they've won one League Cup in that time. Uh, and, you know, well, very grateful for the memories, very, very grateful for, you know, the nice stadium and the massive bar and whatever else. But, you know, you want things to be trending upwards and at the moment they're definitely not. And it's sort of hard to be optimistic given, uh, as we said a few times in the last few weeks, the decision-making hasn't been great. Uh, absolutely right. Give me the lowdown. Um, James, you said I'm talking about the post-match shenanigans by the club. Um, first and foremost, and they've done they've done this for years, let's not kid ourselves, when the boos were going to ring out, although they couldn't have been very loud because there wasn't a huge amount of people left in the stadium, they just crank the music over that astonishing sound system they've got. You've got no chance. It's 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 like being um, a handful of children at, at Glastonbury. You're just not going to be heard, are you? They they did blast it out. Yeah, I mean, I still think there were probably you know a lot of people that left, but there must have still been at least like forty five, probably fifty thousand people there. I think realistically, uh, and the booing was probably among the the loudest booing I've ever heard at a Spurs game I think other than kind of you know in game you know like a North London derby you know first time Sol Campbell came back or whatever you know a booing of a Spurs team or performance that would have to be right up there and I just find it I find it incredibly grim that that happens and you're right you know that's been happening for 20 years and we've talked before on the podcast about how often they used to play Beyonce crazy in love at the end of a game in kind of like mid-2000s when Spurs would lose or draw badly at home. Uh, and they'd kind of played that in with the horns cranked up right up to the max. So you couldn't hear anything over the top Blaring of it. is the word you're looking for. It's actually yeah, blaring, exactly wasn't right. it? Exactly right. Um, 
and in a moment of like like real frustration and anger, like the fact that you, like the sense that you're being silenced by the people you're effectively protesting against and paying, by the way, and paying for the privilege, exactly right. I, I mean, what what kind of message does that send? I think it's you know, I think it's absolutely crazy they do things like that. And you know, I had a few tweets from people saying every club does this. I'm, I'm not entirely sure that is the case. Uh, but to play to play the music that loud, and, and I'd gone by then. I'm ashamed to admit, but by the time I did the the walk of shame or whatever they call it, uh, I, I gather they had stereophonics playing incredibly loudly through all of that as well, so no one could hear anything from the crowd. I just think, what? How are you trying to kid? How, like you can't possibly pretend this hasn't been an absolute nightmare season, uh, and that fans are incredibly annoyed. What? Why? Why do that? I just, I think it sounds out completely the wrong message. It's like it's almost like. You're saying to those dissenting voices that your opinions are don't matter, and that isn't. I, I don't think that's going. You know, Jack, Jack talks about the moderates that have been swayed over the course of the season. I don't think that kind of thing is going to is going to sway them back. No, it, it, it definitely doesn't help. Um, and on to, to add to that, as you said, then there was, and of course, this thing is pre-planned. You can't really not do it because that's another even bigger story. Um, there was the lap of appreciation, which over the you know. Contrast, you know, five years ago and how exciting all that was. Um, the big screen said, end of season awards to commence shortly, to which our own Charlie Eccleshire tweeted, not now, mate, with a picture of it. Um, and Jack, I think you were being tongue-in-cheek when you tweeted to finish off um, our tweet coverage of that game. Um, really curious to see who's winning the three Spurs Player of the Season awards. Yeah, we had a big chat in the press box about who would come second, third, fourth and fifth. For these awards because Kane was so obvious. I think there's a big there's a big consensus around Benton Kerr for second, even though he obviously did his knee, sadly. I mean he's never really didn't do a lot after the World Cup and then came back and then did his knee, which I think is um which obviously hurt Tottenham a lot. But then behind Benton Kerr, I mean there were some suggestions of Hoyberg. I suggested Dan Juma. Uh there were some suggestions of Davis. And beyond that I don't really know. I don't think there's Emerson anyone. Royal was the other one I'd seen. Emerson, yeah. yeah. The way he's turned around the booze, it means he's deserving of a mention. But, you know, I'm pretty easy going, uh, you know, when I get on my hind legs, I really do slam the players and the manager, whoever it is it's about. But mostly I want, my instinct is to want to big them up, to praise them. Um, because what the hell else am I following the football club for otherwise? Um, but there was absolutely, no, I couldn't think of anybody who has done better than five out of ten this season, um, with with the exception of Kane, who has been exceptional, bewildering, all the usual things, and to do all this, people say, "Oh, he's done it," you know, stealthily in the shadow of Harland. There are other players who would have wilted in the shadow of Harland. He's just carried on uh, having his, you know, another great season. Um, and then finally, there was um, the announcement by Paul Coit, the stadium announcer, or a fellow who does the bits and pieces at the side of the road, my colleague at TalkSport, who said, now let's look back on season 22-23, which is called the Charlie Eckershare, started up the booing again. Yeah, they they booed the the start of the video. So they, they did a, a a video clip, which I, it wasn't very long. It made, felt like maybe about 20, 30 seconds of just some of the best goals of the season. But uh, that got booed. Uh, which was which was quite funny to be honest, but n- not something that I'd be I was expecting. 
Yeah, for the record, Harry Kane won the three Player of the Year awards that are given out, and the goal of the season went to Son's uh, long-range curler against Brighton. I have to say, if uh, the voting had been done immediately after the game, I suspect Kane's free-kick routine would have won it as well. And so ended, at home at least, uh, a really rotten season for Spurs with a rotten second half and a horrible, horrible result. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to The View from the Lane. I'm Danny Kelly. Jack Pitbrook and James Moore are with me. Um, Let's look at some other things other than that um, second-half train wreck against Brentford Football Club. Um, It's 40 years ago to the day that Spurs played in the FA Cup final, their second successive FA Cup final, the 1982 final at Wembley against Queen's Park Rangers. Uh, The game was an incredibly unremarkable match. There was nil-nil at full-time. And eventually, Terry Fenwick, who went on later to play for Spurs, scored for Queen's Park Rangers, but Glenn Hoddle equalised, take the game to a replay. Now, of course, Queen's Park Rangers were a second division team, and people will say, well, that's a pretty easy cup final for Spurs. We'll talk about the replay in a second. I have to say, though, their run to the final was extraordinary. Spurs beat one, one, two, three, four, five teams that in my lifetime have been champions of England. In the semi-final, they beat Leicester. In the quarter-final, they beat Chelsea. In the fifth round, they beat Aston Villa. In the fourth round, they beat Leeds United. And in the third round, on the first Saturday of January 1982, uh, in a packed White Hart Lane, they beat Arsenal by a goal to nil. The game against Arsenal was memorable for two reasons. One, Pat Jennings playing in goal for the Arsenal made probably the only mistake of his entire 59-year career and allowed a ball to put a squirm underneath him for Spurs' winner. Spurs won 1-0. Even more remarkably... 
In November of the previous year, so so six, six weeks earlier, the Human League have released Don't You Want Me? Um, and that record has shot to number one over Christmas, went on to be in the number one in the charts for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And for some reason, it became a kind of alternative national anthem. And I remember before the start of the game against Arsenal in the FA Cup, they played it over the PR system. And I've never, ever heard this in a football ground, possibly the Hibernian fans singing Sunshine on Leith after Hibs won the uh, Scottish FA Cup. But that was only half the stadium. The entire stadium, Spurs fans, Arsenal fans, old people, young people, children and dogs sang Don't You Want Me at the top of their voices. It was absolutely hair-raisingly brilliant. Um, and one of those, you know, you, you go to football to watch football matches and great goals and Harry Kane and all the rest of it, but there's one of those memories that's still absolutely stuck in me. Uh, the replay came um, four days later on a Thursday, um, and it's remarkable for two things. It was another absolutely appalling game, won by a Glenn Hoddle penalty after six minutes after... Glenn himself had been brought down by Tony Curry, the England midfielder who played for Queen's Park Rangers, but Jack and James and uh, listening millions. Um, it's the only FA Cup final uh, to be played, I think, in the last 100 years in front of a non-capacity crowd. Um, obviously, in the first game, you've got all the sort of 30, 40 FA hangers-on, 40,000 FA hangers-on who all get tickets. In the second leg, there were the usual, there were the 10,000 QPR fans 80,000 Spurs fans, but the the, the ground was 8,000 below capacity for an FA Cup final. Um, as Spurs lifted their second successive title in that competition. I should also say that it's only a year ago to this day that Spurs were beating Norwich 5-0 to secure James Champions League football. What a lot of water is under the bridge since then. I have to say, on the topic of that Cup final in 1982, I am fascinated at how you can arrange a game like that at such short notice. You know, doing, you know, Saturday Saturday afternoon to Thursday evening turnaround and all of a sudden trying to sell 100,000 tickets, sorting out the TV. It's like nowadays, these are such, like, you know, the effort, it's such a, a kind of mega event which in which, you know, big bits of London are basically rebuilt to service it. And uh, you can just feel the amount of money that's been ploughed into it by particularly... By, by sponsors and and everything. It's just, yeah, it's kind of amazing to me that they could turn it around that quickly. Okay, let's take some uh, some emails. You know our address. It's vftl um, at theathletic.com. Um, and this came from Tom, who talked about the music afterwards. And Jack, you may want to, I think you might be more across the editors than I am. He said, hi, chaps. Editors. I'm uh, Sorry, you're not, no, there's no, yeah, like Buzzcocks, no yeah, article. Sex Pistols too. Um, I didn't want to, to uh, I don't think you'd want to spend a full episode talking about the game. And I knew you'd appreciate a music-related question. Well, Tom, you're absolutely right about that. The final whistle, Munich by, and he's put in the editors, amateur, amateur hour. Um, Munich by editors was played around the stadium. Was there a reason? The following lyrics from the song are a worry. This is Tom's interpretation. I'm so glad I found this. I'm so glad I did. Was this bit for Brentford? People are fragile things. You should know by now. Be careful what you put them through. Was this dedicated to Levy or from Levy to the fans? It goes on. It breaks when you don't try. Directed at the players, asks Tom. And finally, um, he'll speak when he's spoken to. Is this about the new manager or sporting director? Very, very good. Thank you very much indeed, Tom. 
Um, and thank you for correcting the fact that it is editors. Yes, and that's important, Jack. I, I, I take the, uh, the admonition in, great, in good spirits. Let's end the podcast with a question that um, was brought by Guy Fletcher. He said, question for the uh, next view from the lane. Where would Spurs have finished if Conte had stayed? Now, I know we've got Charlie to respond to this, so I'll give you, a ch- you two a chance to get your heads together. Uh, Charlie said, my view was without the rant, they'd probably have come sixth, maybe fifth or seventh, definitely not as low as eighth. Would have been miserable, but at least competently miserable, much like the rest of the season under him. Um, what do you think, James? Where would Spurs have finished if Conte hadn't gone? I mean, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people have, were kind of thinking this over the weekend. Uh, and, you know, as bad as things were going under Conte and as much as it felt like they were going to get even worse, it's hard to imagine that the kind of 11, 12 games between then and now could really have gone much worse. I don't I don't really see, because I think they've won twice. I think, and one of, those, left, right? one of those was unbelievably lucky, yeah? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I I think they would have thought, I mean, you know, there's this oft-quoted thing that they were in the top four when Conte was sacked and they were within that bad Southampton penalty of being third. But, you know, as we were saying a lot of the time, games in hand were a big thing back then. You know, I think Newcastle had a couple, Brighton had a couple. So, you know, even if they'd kind of plodded along at a relatively sedate pace, I think they would have been overtaken by those two. So, yeah, I think Charlie's probably right. I think maybe six. They've averaged a point a game since Conte left. I mean, it's really bad. They're, fi- they're 15th in the league since he left. I, I looked mm, at Yummo, lovely. It's, it's really, really bad. Um, I, I, yeah, look, I think the biggest thing is that they completely botched the the the, the sacking, the transition. They had the opportunity to get that immediate feel-good factor of, of Mason or whoever else taking charge. And instead, they went for this weird sort of interacting with uh, Stellini. I've got his name then, Jesus. Yeah. Stellini. Oh, um, believe me, little... in six weeks' time, you will not be able to recall it. I promise you. No, 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 because I'll be commissioning athletic long reads on it and stuff. So it'll, it'll always be there for me. The Stellini era reconsidered. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, we'll be going on about it for years. Stellini, the gold, the golden days. <laughs> Jack will write a book about it probably, and then yeah. Anyway, right, yeah. So you know, we've had those games, you know, uh, Everton and then Bournemouth, where you know perhaps and Brighton in between those as well. Which maybe would have given and Southampton, by the way, which is when Conte should have originally been gone by. Let's face it, uh, it would have been a bit of a, a slightly easier run of games for a new caretaker slash interim manager to have like a, a proper kind of crack at it and then try and get a few points on the board, swing the momentum round, and then have a bit of positivity before more difficult games. And things could have been very different if they'd done that. And I think the reality is, sacking Conte wasn't the problem. It's the way. They tried to transition into something else through not really changing that much. So we were talking about it, and me and Charlie went for went for a pint after. Where the game did you go on Saturday? Uh, we went to the, the Beaver Town pub. Did we not invite James? <laughs> we must have been talking about it on WhatsApp, I guess, during the game. Uh, yeah, no, you, t- you told James the, you were going to the Red Lion with uh, uh, Dan Kilpatrick, the Evening Standard. Oh, great company! Um, great company, James. You really missed out. And uh, Tom Allnut and Tom Barkley, and we were actually discussing exactly this this issue. What would have happened if he had if they'd kept Conte? Well, I thought you'd have you know wanted to go off with your other mates. Um, what other mates do you think there are? I think yeah, come you, on. I think that I think what it kind of hinged on for us is: Are we assuming the rant still happened or not? Because once the rant happened, he was history. Like it was, he, that was a, you know that was effectively his resignation. Let really. me jump in there. Let me, let me if, ask you this question. Sorry, 
The sliding doors moment for me is the penalty at Southampton. Um, the Maitland-Niles uh, invents contact. The referee buys it for whatever reason. VAR doesn't change it for whatever reason. Would he have made the same comments if Spurs had won 3-2 and gone third? He, could, he couldn't have done no. without looking crazy. But I'm sure he had this kind of welling up inside him. And so if they'd... You know, he would have sent. The, he would have spent the international break stewing on it miserably, <laughs> and then would have come back for the international break. And if they'd lost to Everton, then finally he would have got to do it. But I can just if they had kept him and there hadn't been a rant, I can see the. You know, I think they probably would have scraped through to a kind of miserable sick, like very glumly and ugly. But they they might have made it. I think the interesting question is, what if they'd been really brave? And done as James has always said, you know, getting rid of Conte in January, knowing that he's knowing that he wasn't going to stay, or even you know, I think, kind of think as soon as soon as they were knocked out of the Champions League by Milan that week when they got, got knocked out the FA Cup by Sheffield United and the Champions League by AC Milan, as soon as those two things happened, there was no point in him being there anymore. So I think in hindsight, and it was kind of obvious at the time as well, that's when they should have been brave, got rid of him and Stellini, and then either gone for Mason or Mason while trying to find a permanent manager. Because obviously they wouldn't have got, you know, they wouldn't have got somebody good who was in work at that point, but there were other good managers who were not in work who they could have got mid-season. Um, so I think that was the missed opportunity really, was not not grasping the nettle um, earlier in the season. Yeah, I mean, but my own feeling is that it, it, the rant sets off a sequence of events that should, you're like, I agree with both of you, that it should have never have got to that. Um, what, I mean, I was saying it on the pod, so I don't feel like I'm rewriting history. Um, once it became clear that he was not going to sign a new contract, you effectively had a caretaker manager, and not just a caretaker manager you have like with Ryan now, but a caretaker manager who hated being there. And that could only go one way. Well, look, by the way, you, you mentioned that Norwich game a year ago where Spurs qualified for the Champions League a year ago today. But if you remember, immediately after that, he swanned off to Italy and we were all left waiting to see whether he was going to bother sticking around for the, for the season just gone. No, no. And that's one, and yet another one of the bricks that set it, helped build the wall of animosity that I have constructed against the bloke. I really take against people. Anyone who knows me will tell you, I, you have to really, really try hard to get on my wrong side over any period of time. But he really, really got on my tits, that fella. And so the answer to the question is, I don't care how bad it made at the end of the season. The season was already a wreck. Um, and I was just glad to see the back of him. Now he can probably get the job at Rome if Mourinho becomes the new PSG manager and he might win the Scudetto and all the rest of it. But I will never have, I mean, ha you know, a dozen games at the end of last season when they played some lovely stuff before the other coaches went, oh, okay, that's what he's doing. Is it all right? We'll stop that next season. And did. Um, it's, it's, it's a terrible thing to say. I was prepared to pay the price of a terrible run into the season, which is what we've had, as long as it, we got some certainty that th this fellow would not be. I don't want to use horrible words about him. That's um, I've done too much of that in the past, but this that, that the fellow was moved on. Um, he could have gone earlier, should have gone earlier. Um, we're all the witnesses of what uh, what he's left behind him for now. As I always say, um, I do believe that football squads can be turned around with relative ease and very quickly with the right person in the all-important manager's job. Um, we've seen it uh, we, over a slightly longer period of time at, at Arsenal. We've seen what happened at Burnley. We've seen what happened at Naples. It can be done. Um, so let's not end in doom and gloom, this one. Um, but Conte's departure has set off, you know, it just, 
it just continued to paint a really difficult season in horrible colours. Listen, thank you very much indeed, everybody. Um, thank you both, obviously, for you for listening, but also to James and Jack for being here with me. And as I uh, as I like to say, if you're not already an Athletic subscriber, then you need to sign up now to read all of the incredible Spurs coverage, as well as everything else that makes the site so enormously entertaining. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod and sign up right now for $1.99 a month for the first 12 months. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Thanks for listening. We'll be back on Thursday. Spurs may have a new manager. We'll see. The Athletic.